Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. This episode, I am joined by first-time guest co-pilot and Patreon legend, Nicholas Dunning. Nick, welcome to the R4 Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So in this episode, we're going to review Living Colors' 1990 album, Time's Up. So Nick, how did you discover Living Color and this album in particular? So I discovered them in, it must have been late 1990, early 91. And at the time, I guess I was listening to a lot of kind of Wasp and Guns N' Roses and Queen and stuff like that and starting to get into like instrumental guitar music, Satriani, Vibe, Aldi Miola, that kind of stuff. And I guess at that time, it was just before all the kind of the big era-defining albums came out, you know, the Nevermind, Black Album, the Blood Sugar Sex Magic, 10, Use Your Illusion, all that kind of stuff that I would go on to listen to. And I was still kind of finding my way into the world of like heavy metal. And I suppose like most people, I'd get like recommendations from friends at school and stuff like that. And that's how it was with Living Colour. Um, it was one of my friends, I think it was a guy called Howard Davis. Uh, he bought both the Living Colour albums, um, such as they were at the time, the Vivid and Time's Up. Uh, kind of at the same time, and he lent them to me. And I remember liking them straight away and listened to both of them kind of nonstop for quite a few months, I guess, and put them onto a cassette uh, with both albums, one on each side, um, as it was back in the day. And that kind of lived in my Walkman for another few months, I guess. Um, and then that summer they toured the UK, and I managed to get tickets to see them at a really good venue called Manchester Academy. Um, and I suppose at that point I'd been to quite a few concerts with my parents over the years, but really mainstream kind of old school stuff um, and this is the first kind of time going on my own if you like um, it's quite a big deal because the venue is like uh, for over 18s only and I was only 15 at the time all right so it was um, kind of it was like how am I going to get in there and <laughs> I remember it was at the end of it was on Saturday and the week before had been a week off school so I decided to try and grow a beard and a uh, 15 year old beard was pretty pathetic, but uh, somehow I, I got it in anyway. Um, and it was it was absolutely amazing. I remember getting I kind of got down the front, probably three or four people from the from the barrier. And the first song they played was "Times Up," and it was just like, oh my god, <laughs> it just went mental. Yeah. And uh, I just kind of didn't know what hit me really. Yeah, I would say that that concert still to this day is probably the hottest and sweatiest I've ever been in a gig. It was <laughs> unbelievable. Like right at the end. After we finished, I kind of went to the loop and literally wrung my T-shirt out and sweat poured out. It was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went back into the into the main hall and the, the band were there. So I got to meet them and they signed oh, wow. my jeans and everything, which was, was pretty cool. So those I never wore those jeans again because they were just, again, soaking wet. <laughs> it was like, right, they're done. You still have I'm them? I'm going to wash them. Uh, I, they're probably at my parents actually. Yeah. Yeah. I cut All them right. down to shorts and, um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I love those, but, uh, yeah. And then I suppose over the years, I saw them again live a couple of times in the last three or four years when they've toured. Um, and they're still amazing. They're obviously a different bass player now, but my God, they're such a great band. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into them and this album in particular. All right. Fantastic. I first heard of Living Color when I saw the video for the song Cult of Personality on MTV, and I thought, wow, a black heavy metal band. Yeah. I didn't think I'd ever heard of one before, and it was really, like, eye-opening. And that song kicked ass. So I went right out and got the first album, Vivid, on cassette, and I dug the shit out of it. So I became an instant Living Color fan. 
And then when Time's Up came out a couple years later, I was right on it. I got it on CD because by then I'd started collecting CDs. And in that two-year span, I was switching from cassettes to CDs. Yeah. So that's really the story. There you have it. I was right on this album from day one. Great. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record pulled straight from Wikipedia. Time's Up is the second studio album by American rock band Living Color, released on August 28, 1990 on Epic Records. It was produced by Ed Stasium and was recorded from 1989 to 1990 at A&M Studios, Hollywood, California, and RPM Studios, Los Angeles, California. It reached number 13 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified gold by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We have Corey Glover on vocals and rhythm guitar on one track, Vernon Reed on lead guitar, Muzz Skillings on bass, and Will Calhoun on drums. There are additional musicians which we'll mention as we see fit. Okay, let's move into a track-by-track analysis of this album. Starting things off is the title track, Time's Up, written by Vernon Reed, Muzz Skillings, Corey Glover, and Will Calhoun. Time's up! What do you think? So it's quite a start, I would say. It starts um, with the ringing of various alarm clocks, and it, it kind of reminds me of Pink Floyd's time, as I imagine it does most people. Fairly uh, blatant ripoff, you could say. Um, but I guess with that song, it kind of leads into a long, quiet passage that kind of calms you down, whereas this one just blasts straight into one of the like, most frantic, kind of frenetic songs that I know. The verse like thrashes along at incredible speed um, and then it breaks into a kind of a slow groove with a bit of slap bass and kind of steady, funky um, drum groove. But this doesn't last that long before you're thrown back into the, the fast part again, which um, then leads up to the guitar solo. And that starts off with some very weird note choices, which I guess is fairly typical of Vernon Reed. Loads of kind of trademark kind of squeaks and beeps and really odd guitar sounds before he launches into like the full on thrash um shred section where he's just absolutely going for it and it just melts your face and then as the solo ends we move back into the that kind of groove section again which takes us out more or less to the end of the song it's an absolutely manic opener to the album um and it catches you up a bit off guard i think it, particularly if, you know knowing vivid which yeah it's very varied but there's nothing quite this intense i would say so um yeah it's, it's pretty full-on and it kind of makes sure you're awake <laughs> for the rest of the album yeah, wow, that was good. I'm going to be repeating a lot of what you say. I got a feeling that's how this episode's going to go. But, you know, listeners know how this, everybody knows the deal. Like you said, it starts up with that mashup of clock ticking and bell sounds, and then it blasts off like a thrash metal tune, or more accurately, it's a nod to the hardcore band Bad Brains, who Living Color knew, and they actually acknowledged their influence on this song. Will Calhoun bringing the fast skank beat, Muzz Skillings holding the bottom end and playing fast, mixing in higher and lower notes and also adding pops and slaps for percussive effect. 
Vernon Reed's guitar brings the heavy, distorted riffs, and Corey Glover barking out the vocals, and I've always dug his vocals. They're clean, expressive, and sit comfortably somewhere in the mid-range, but he can go. He can hit some high notes when he really chooses to, oh, yeah. and he's also capable of taking it down to an effective growl when called for. He's got a pretty elastic voice. The track has three clear sections, the fast metal section in the verses, that slower, heavy groove section that features a descending riff and serves as a kind of, sort of chorus section, and then the solo section. Like you said, it features Reed guitar soloing over Skilling's bass without a rhythm guitar track, and that sounds cool. As Calhoun adds a second snare note over a thumping beat, a little bit of syncopation, something that Calhoun does a lot on this record. Reed soloing, like you said, it's interesting is that when he plays fast, it's this flurry of frantic notes that just kind of blurs by it. And then he seemingly like randomly throws in sustained notes. And then like when he starts the solo, like you said, it sounds dissonant. They're not right, but it sounds cool. Yeah. And when he slows down, he changes it up to more controlled melodic phrasing. I really like how he solos. It's very different. He's a very, very unique style that he plays with. Lyrically, Glover implores you to live your life in the moment and do the things you want to do with your life now. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Your time is short. It waits for no one and is not on your side. This caught me off guard when I first heard this because, like you said, there was nothing this ripping on the first album. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah. (laughs) So this was the sixth and final single from the album that did not chart. Wow. The next track is History Lesson, written by Vernon Reed. Music is not an art form as much as it is a means of communication. We are wearing the name of our master. The slave had no separate identity. Civilization started away before Europe. What about this, Nick? So this one, um, this is the first track on the album I, I never really knew before preparing for this because um, when I recorded the CD onto the C90 cassette, I knew it wouldn't all fit. So I, I kind of skipped off the the uh, like interlude songs, for, for want of a better word. So th- this one was was one of them. I, I, it's a short track. Um, the kind of main, I think, idea behind it is, is talking about music as being more of a means of communication in Africa rather than a an art form, um, which pretty much is what they say. So, yeah, that's kind of all I've got for this one. It's it's fine, short and sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's an interlude track. It's a kind of sound collage. It's got whispered vocals, there's percussion, what sounds like odd string plucking and backwards guitar notes and interwoven spoken words, including actor James Earl Jones mm. speaking about how music in Africa is a communication tool more than an art form and how slaves in America had no names, no separate identities, and wore the names of their masters. It's provocative, it makes you think, and basically serves as an intro to the next track. And that following track is Pride, written by Will Calhoun. Freedom is 
How about this one, Nick? Yeah, so this song starts with a, a distinctive kind of short staccato riff um, before settling into a really tight kind of heavy groove. Saying a lot of the credit on this album, I feel, goes to, to Will Calhoun. He can play kind of as funky or technical as you want, but um, often he's just laying down a really solid kind of heavy groove. Um, not unnecessarily flashy or anything, but a really good bedrock for the song um, and for the other instruments to kind of play around. And this is the first of exam- uh, a few examples, I would say, on, on the album where he's just really nailing it and then after the kind of heavy opening riff the verse kicks in um and here you've got vernon reed using his guitar to create like this huge kind of textured sound it's heavily distorted and really fuzzy kind of tone and he's playing kind of almost jazz inflected chords but they just sound enormous and it's 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 rock not jazz but the chords are are not typical you know kind of heavy metal (laughs) kind of sound i'd say the solo again is, is another typical kind of read solo and then it starts off with a slower squeaking kind of awkward melody before moving into another shredding section and i kind of echoing what you were saying now i was saying it, i think he's a really kind of unique voice on guitar he's really experimental and not afraid to come out with some pretty weird and sometimes almost painful sounds and melodies which really keep you on edge um, when you're listening to him um i rate him very highly but he's certainly not the most relaxing guitarist to listen to i'd say <laughs> Um, and just as a little aside, I actually saw him. I lived in Poland for a few months in 1999, and I saw that he was coming over to play a concert. They had a jazz festival or something, and he was playing with with two other guys called David Torn and Elliot somebody other. I can't remember his name. And I thought, well, I've got to go because it's Vernon Reed, and it was the worst. Oh, <laughs> sure. It was so experimental. It, I mean, I like a lot of weird guitar stuff and this was beyond and actually i i I was trying to remember the dates and i I looked on youtube and they've got the whole concert on there the one i was at oh wow which is really bizarre but um yeah i I wouldn't recommend it it's it was weird i think i i only lasted about half an hour and i left (laughs) oh oh, man i hope you didn't pay too much yeah yeah but um but anyway it's kind of cool (laughs) so anyway while he's kind of flying all over the place um in his solo the bass and drums are having a lot of fun underneath what he's playing so muskillings get some really fantastic bass runs in um, that really kind of complement the music, and to me they're as memorable as as the guitar lines. They really, when I sing this song in my head, I'm kind of I've got the bass going. And so far, I haven't mentioned Corey Glover, but uh, his vocals on this track I think are fantastic, as they are really on the whole album, as you were saying. He's got an incredibly powerful voice, and it's also really soulful. And as you were saying, he's got this great range as well, um, from yeah low kind of growls and up to the really high notes that come a bit later on. So yeah, good good, good track. Yeah, it's a mid-tempo heavy rocker that features a nice main riff, the bass following along with the riff, and a relatively straightforward beat on this one. Glover's vocals are darker and serious in the verses and become more melodic and open in the catchy chorus, where the guitar apes the vocal melody. The bridge section changes up the rhythm to a more staccato pattern as Reed solos with plenty of fast tremolo picking and added nearly discordant long notes Uh, I'll be saying this all episode, his style is really interesting. And then he pulls it back in for the last verse and chorus. The lyrics are about how American history is glossed over when it comes to slavery and the band have witnessed racism in their own experience. When white audiences like the band's look and music, but when the music stops, inviting eyes, hands drop. The band want to be recognized as human beings and not as some curiosities for playing music that's typically the domain of white artists because it's here for all to play. And as a matter of fact, all this rock music derives from black music. Again, it's thought-provoking material and Living Color is not backing away from saying what needs to be said. 
This was the fifth single that reached number 42 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. The next track is Love Rears Its Ugly Head, written by Vernon Reed. Now something's different, I don't know the reason why. Whenever we separate, I almost want to cry. Nick, your thoughts. So this song was released as a single in the UK, but it was in a remix form that kind of took away some of the heaviness of the track. Um, it actually did pretty well as well over here. Um, I think it got to number 12. I remember it getting a fair amount of radio play, which was quite unusual um, at the time. And it always made me smile when I heard it. Incidentally, Nick, where are you calling from? So I, I'm in Manchester in England. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we certainly back in these days, there was no um, variation to our radio. Like in the States, you have, you know, you've got your rock radio and, you, yeah. you know, all the different things. Whereas we have that a little bit now. We probably have two rock stations in the UK. But <laughs> at the time, it was it was BBC Radio 1, Radio 2, whatever. Yeah. And to hear Living Colour on Radio 1 was 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 quite quite something <laughs> yeah i remember buying the i bought the cd single actually of this one and it had four different versions of the of the song on um all different kind of remixes but for me the the, the album version is is the best one um it kind of starts with like a string section that's reminiscent of like an old film score or something like that it really kind of got this romantic kind of feel to it and then it soon kicks into a, again another really solid groove which kind of gets your head bobbing and um cory starts singing about the perils of being in love and where the protagonist is so kind of infatuated with his woman that he starts acting all strange and he can't help it and he, he doesn't like it. And um, there's vocals throughout the song, again, are really strong, and you can kind of hear the angst in his voice. He's almost pleading with love to, like, leave him alone. It's, like, uh, really effective. In the verse sections, there's something I really like, actually, in this song and a few of the others as well. There's so much space. They're often just the drums and the bass and the guitar kind of pops in and out. And... Um, pauses as well which are fantastic and as you get into the pre-chorus like the heavy guitars come in and then we go into it's like a first small guitar solo short guitar solo which um has some really tasty bass work and some great drum fills as well it's, love that bit and they use this kind of stop start technique to really good effect on on, on this song in particular um they got several times where the instruments kind of drop out entirely and we're left with this like short moments of silence before things kind of kick off again I just find it really effective and they use that kind of one last time at the end and then you get this nice little tasty drum fill and then it kind of stops but uh but yeah love this track this starts with a string passage like you said it's a sample from a Nat King Cole song Lush Life oh. so yeah it's it's older and it's definitely romantic and then it transitions to a slow R&B inflected number with Reed playing a choppy clean guitar, Skillings following along with Reed while adding little note flourishes and Calhoun keeping everything on track with a basic beat in the verse sections. The chorus sections add distortion and Skillings plays a fluid, funky bass line underneath. And Glover does his best soulful R&B crooner as he relates how difficult it is for him to wrap his head around that he's falling in love with the girl. She doesn't nag him or complain about him. He gets upset when they're apart. Even his friends are alarmed at the changes in him. 
He even dreams that he gets married to her until he wakes up from that nightmare in a pool of sweat. Yeah, no shit, Corey. That is a nightmare. <laughs> Reed Solo is tasteful and lyrical and sounds like a second voice along with Glover and Living Color shows that they can do more than just rock out. This was the second single in the U.S. that reached number eight on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart. Whatever that is. <laughs> Jeez, all these stupid charts. Yeah. The following track is New Jack Theme, written by Vernon Reed. How about this one, Nick? So this starts off with the guitar kind of creating a sireny sound that gives you an idea of kind of what's going to come in this song. Again, it's a fairly heavy opening riff uh, before things speed up as we get to the verse. And in the verse, the, the riff's pretty simple, I'd say, but the momentum is fantastic, driven along by this awesome drum groove, which really kind of pushes the song forward. The lyrics are about, uh, from the point of view of a, a drug dealer, from a presumably a kind of fairly hard up area who's boasting about how much money he makes and challenging people to stop him. And the paints a pretty good picture, I would say. There's a good bridge section that then leads into the kind of the solo breakdown section. And this has got more kind of siren sounds coming from Reed's guitar. And the, the solo itself, again, is, is kind of pretty tuneless and chaotic. And I always kind of hear this bit as being as if they're trying to paint a picture of the sounds on the street with the police trying to catch the drug dealers, all that kind of thing. And mm. um, yeah, I, I think I think it's pretty effective. As we come out of the solo, Corey comes in with the uh, doesn't anybody see me, doesn't anybody hear me lines. And there's a fantastic long note at the end. It's around two minutes, 55. And um, it's just got so much, I don't know, it just really gets me every time. It's, it's one of my favorite, certainly vocal bits on the album. Um, he's just got such a great voice. And then we come back to the main driving verse riff again, uh, where Corey tells us that we'll, he'll never change and he'll never stop. I've got your cash. I'm on the top. There's no remorse from this guy. He's he's going for it. Yeah, geez. Well, I don't even know what else to say except say everything again. Repeat everything <laughs> that Nick just said. I, Reed starts this with a phased guitar line that sounds like a siren and carries through a stuttering section that doubles as the pre-chorus. And then the song takes off on an up-tempo hard rocker that features skillings, throwing in occasional bass chords, and Calhoun bringing some drumming syncopation with an extra snare beat. The breakdown changes up the tempo and rhythm with a cool new riff, and then the breakdown goes off with a kaleidoscope of sound effects, interweaving guitar lines, and additional percussion. Glover stays in his higher register for most of the track as he sings of being a crack dealer living on the edge in the city. He makes more money than a judge or a cop, and he's living large with no turning back, like you said, no regrets. The song's kind of got a patchwork quality to it that doesn't stick with me as much. This is not a favorite track of mine on this record. The next track is Someone Like You, written by Muzz Skillings.
How about this one, Nick? Yeah, so this one, I'd say, is another kind of angry one from the the, uh, the lyrical perspective of the band kind of blaming politicians and police um, for the troubles in the in, in the city. I think it's quite interesting that like many of the themes that they're thinking about kind of 30 years ago, they still seem pretty relevant in today's world, which, mm. I don't know, doesn't speak well for... Sad, <laughs> for isn't it? Yeah. Humanity, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, Corey sings that it, it's never too late to change your ways, but um, I'm not sure the people in power kind of really have over that time there. They keep going. The song kicks in with another it's really rock steady beat from from Will Calhoun. And again, there's a, a lot of space in the music um, with numerous pauses with, with no music at all. Um, Reed gets some more siren noises in when Corey's singing about police brutality, which is, is quite a nice little touch. Um, it's also, yeah, I find that really effective. And then this I noticed the other day, I don't know if it's just me, but is the riff in the chorus is really reminiscent of Lady Madonna by the Beatles. Dun, 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 yes. Dun, dun. It's like, I was like, what's that? What's that? And then, yeah, it came to me. But yeah, it only struck me really last night. <laughs> and now I can't hear it. <laughs> so yeah, again, I, I, I like this one. It's good. The sound of children playing on a playground or a campground or something gives way to another rocker that features Reed and Skillings playing together on the main riff and carrying it over into the verses that takes a pause at the end of each measure for a snare hit and an occasional guitar fill. Like you said, there's lots of space. The second half of the verse section increases the tension and acts as a pre-chorus that gets resolved with an up-and-down riff in the chorus passage that ends with Glover singing with someone like you in the pause at last two beats. Lyrically, the band tackles racism again and how those in authority turn a blind eye to the issues of the inner city, be they politicians or police officers who abuse their power, police brutality, gunning down a medical student. Sadly, like you said, still very relevant in today's society, in the bridge section, the band offers some hope with It's Never Too Late to Change Your Ways, but the final verse then describes a young woman who gives her body out of fear and becomes a mother herself relying on her faith to get by. I dig this song too. The message lands and the chorus sticks with me. Maybe it's that Lady Madonna thing too. That's part might be a reason why it sticks with me. Yeah. Besi- besides yeah. The, the lyrics and the vocals. Yeah. The following track is Elvis is Dead. Written by Vernon Reed. I saw Elvis the other day. Get out of here, man. <laughs> so this one, this one starts with an upfront bass line, repeating a couple of times um, before we get another signature, you know, Calhoun drum groove um, and Reed playing almost kind of Nile Rodgers-esque kind of funk chords, um, but heavily distorted and, and fuzzy. Um, and Glover sings about the, the trend of supposed kind of sightings of Elvis and how people are exploited uh, by their wish for him to still be alive. So the chorus loses the the steady beat and the drums become more syncopated and funky. And again, you've still got these kind of sheet guitar chords um, in the background. And around what was it one minute 34, they go into a breakdown section with some really cool kind of slap bass and more funky drumming. And this continues under another verse. Then the middle section has the guitar and the bass drop out and you've just got the drums and various voices 
proclaiming that Elvis is dead, sometimes in English, sometimes in other languages. And you've got little Richard doing a spoken word kind of verse over the top of it. And then after the Elvis has left the building line, um, we get a sax solo, which is cool. Um, and then we return to the original groove, and this takes us through to the end of the song. Um, yeah, this, this is a fun one. I like this. This has the straightforward beat, a percolating bass line, and Reed playing a noisy, high-pitched, funk-fueled guitar part that carries over into the chorus, which sees the rhythm section switch to a thunderous start-and-stop pattern and Glover channeling James Brown, yelping, Elvis is dead, complete with highs and give it to me! The extended bridge section has Skillings playing slap bass under the cacophony while the band quotes public enemies fight the power with the line, Elvis was a hero to most while also noting that Elvis Presley copied his vocal stylings from black artists so that this dangerous new music, rhythm and blues and rock and roll, could be made palatable to white America in the 1950s. The breakdown section features many different free-floating voices, like you said, Nick, saying Elvis is dead, over a spare Calhoun drum beat, and then Little Richard, a contemporary of Elvis, does a semi-rap about America's fascination with Elvis and bemoaning the fact that unscrupulous people continue to make money on his name even after the king was long dead. The solo section features Maceo Parker from the James Brown Band and Parliament Funkadelic blowing some funky saxophone, and the chorus winds down with the chant of I've got a reason to believe we all won't be received at Graceland, which is kind of a dig at the Paul Simon song Graceland. Living Color mocks all the delusional people who believe Elvis Presley's death was faked and he was still alive and hiding from the public. Duh. This was the fourth single that reached number 25 on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart. Elvis has left the building. Apparently one of the voices is um, Mick Jagger. Mm -hmm. I know that they supported um, the Stones, didn't they, on a, a tour in the States, I think. And they did, and I th if I'm not mistaken, Jagger saw them and kind of championed them. I think he had something to do with getting them signed. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the story. Right, well, that's cool. The next track is Type, written by Vernon Reed. We are the children of concrete and steel. This is the place where the truth is conceived. This is the time You like this one, Nick? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. This kicks in straight in. It's a killer riff. It's one of the heaviest on the album. And I guess for me at the time, that this was the, the most, the easiest one to get into. It's, it just really kind of kicks you in. Um, again, the drums are steady and powerful in the verse and then relax a bit in the kind of chorus section, if you can call it that. Um, again, this song's a real head bopper, kind of a really infectious groove to it. There's a bridge section where Corey tells us that everything that goes around comes around. And then we're into the guitar solo, uh, which has a repeating melody um, over some great drumming. Um, as we come out of the solo, Reed moves into playing these funky, distorted chords again, and it builds the urgency and tension back up until we go back into another verse. Things slow down about around the four minute 20 mark, um, with everything, uh, the everything that goes around refrain being repeated kind of quietly at first, and then it gets progressively louder, with the guitar starting to go off and shredding behind the vocals and the rhythm section keeping things tight and on track. Um, and for the first time in the album, we actually get a fade out. I've written, could this song be a bit shorter? I'd say possibly, but it still rocks. 
Yeah, this comes right out at you with that tight, repetitive riff with a bass matching it to give it weight, including Corey Glover on rhythm guitar. And then a, it also has a straightforward mid-tempo drum beat. Halfway through the verses, Reed brings back that noisy funk tone from the last track, and the chorus hangs a melodic guitar lick on top of a subtly descending bass line. The bridge introduces a new riff and a more open feel with dreamy everything that goes around, comes around vocals. And the solo section chops up the rhythm and Calhoun starts and stops playing on a dime. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. We go through a final verse and chorus and then the tempo slows down as the bridge riff returns. And this almost has a psychedelic vibe to it as it transitions to the final fade out with Reed soloing like a madman. Glover sounds like a prophet proclaiming the coming apocalypse as the lyrics reflect different labels that categorize different aspects of modern life, from consumerism to religion to science and technology to entertainment and art, and how these labels are just irrelevant words that have little practical use, especially to the poorest people of society, born into slums where they grow up and eventually learn the truth that most Americans are sold a bill of goods, that anything is possible, the American dream or whatever is achievable, but none of it reflects reality. It's all bullshit told to keep the sheep in line. I've always loved this track too, Nick. It's in my top three living color tunes of all time, and it was the first single that reached number five on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. The following track is Information Overload. Written by Vernon Reed. Sometimes I wish I had a heart made of steel. Sometimes I wish I couldn't feel. Information overload. Information overload. Nick, what do you say? So this starts off with uh, Reed making his guitar sound like a like an early computer or something trying to load a game. It's not again particularly pleasant to listen to, but it, it to me it certainly shows you where Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine must have got some inspiration. He's just yes. absolutely ahead of the uh, <laughs> of him anyway. So I love the verse structure of this song. Um, so you've got a quick dropout before each line. And then there are a series of great drum fills, which kind of lead into the heavy guitar riff. And you've also got this really interesting bass runs going on as well. Yeah, I love it. Again, the drums in the verse are straight ahead and steady. And then in the chorus, uh, they become more syncopated and really keep things interesting. Um, so the song's about kind of technology and how it's taken over everything and predicts the future that we now live in <laughs> fairly well. Uh, when they say, like, they say the future is on a microchip. Um, but when you think this is in 1990 when computers weren't really ubiquitous yet and mobile phones are like still the size of a brick. And so they're kind of, yeah, they're really seeing it for, for how it now is. Then at two minutes, 36, we move into a bridge section, um, again, with a, with a great riff and Corey complaining that I, I don't want to live like this. He really growls in this section. It doesn't, doesn't sound too happy. <laughs> uh, this leads into a solo section, uh, with the now tried and tested formula of a, a bit of melody followed by some epic shredding. Um, and again, his note choices are really unusual, um, and he really doesn't sound like anyone else. And at the end of the solo, we get some more great drumming and bass work, um, adding extra layers of interest to the song. Um, we go back into a verse with more stop-starts and great drum and bass fills, and then we get an epic high note from Corey that I've, I've always loved. It's kind of the scream. It's awesome. And it's not even a scream. He, he kind of 
he's controlling it. It's it's really good. Um, and from there, we go back into the chorus, and it gradually slows down to a stop. Um, it's the second long song in a row, but for me, it never outstays its welcome. I love this. Yeah, we first hear random guitar noise and feedback, that, that, like a computer. I didn't make that connection, but yes, that's what it sounds like. That's good. And then the song begins with a hanging chord and accompanying bass note that allows the vocal to act as a call, and then it gets answered by a mid-tempo repeated riff pattern, and the verse sections are built on this structure. The chorus section changes up the riff to a constant churning rhythm while Glover repeats the line, Information Overload. And then after a bridge that's more or less a modified chorus section, the breakdown introduces a shuffle beat with tons of awesome added Calhoun fills. And Reed just goes off on the solo, whipping up a flurious frenzy of notes as Skillings continues the shuffle groove underneath him. The lyrics bemoan the sheer volume of information modern society's flooded with and how difficult it is to process it all. And like you said, this came out before the internet age and cell phones, and this song is more relevant than ever now. Mm. And it also references the fact that a small percentage of the populace control the money and power. The lyrics say 10%, but now it's a much smaller number. Yeah, yeah. Again, these words sound awfully prophetic. After the last verse and chorus, the track slows down to a finish as if the power has been slowly cut off. The circuits have been overloaded. No more input. The next track is Undercover of Darkness, written by Corey Glover. I like to touch your skin, even if it is a sin. I'd rather burn than not touch you I might just go mad Thinking what I might have had And all the things I'd like to do Safer seduction Isn't what it is Sexuality isn't what it appears to be It's what you think Nick, what do you say? Okay, so we kind of switch themes lyrically on this one. We're getting a little sexy now. It's <laughs> the song starts with some uh, some light kind of shimmering guitar work before kicking into a really funky groove for the verse. I've always loved this with a clean kind of quickly strummed guitar chords. Again, it's not dissimilar to Nile Rodgers, I guess, and a really kind of sinuous bass line underneath a funky syncopated beat. It's great stuff. Um, Corey's singing to his lover telling her all the things he'd like to do and he's really going for it with some great moans and groans and they're kind of sucking his air through his teeth. <laughs> it's just great. It leaves you no doubt what he's wanting. <laughs> and the chorus again has a lot of space with mainly just vocals and drums driving things along. Um, we go back into the verse again and, and my whole upper body's moving now. It's great stuff. And this time the chorus leads us into a rap by Queen Latifah, who, uh, which for me flows really well and fits, fits the song perfectly. Um, she's kind of got the opposite viewpoints, I think, in what she's saying to, to what he's saying. He's like, come on, just give it to me. And she's kind of saying, well, I'm not so sure. You know, it, you play around. I'm, I'm not having this. I adore you, but you're not the one for me. Yeah. And then this flows seamlessly into the guitar solo, which for me is one of my favorites on the album. It's uh, Reed playing a clean um, sound and the solo really draws heavily from jazz and shows that he can play with feel and groove as well as shredding like a madman. Um, as usual, the drum and bass are having loads of fun playing underneath him. And this is definitely one of my favorite tracks on the album. Love it. Yeah, like you said, that heavily reverb shimmering, that's a great way to describe it. Arpeggiated clean guitar begins this. 
And then it moves into a jazzy R&B flavored track with clean, funky guitar lines, jazzy bass runs with slap notes and tons of movement, and a busy syncopated drum beat. The chorus section features a start and stop motif, cool bass slides, and clarinet and baritone saxophone played by Don Byron. That's really kind of buried low in the mix, but it's there. The breakdown features Queen Latifah, like you said, delivering a rap advocating for safe sex and telling Corey Glover off. The solo sees Reed doing some jazzy noodling, and there's even a string section by the Black Swan String Quartet appearing out of nowhere and disappearing just as quickly. Corey Glover wants some sexy time. He tells the woman what he wants to do to her, but her man's afraid of getting it on in the era of AIDS, so he's remaining abstinent and looking to stimulate the mind in place of the body. Unlike you, Nick, this one didn't grab me as much. I can take or leave it. I don't hate it, but I can take or leave this one. The following track is Ology, written by Muzz Skillings. Nick, what do you think of this? So this is the second track that I didn't have on my cassette back in the day, so I'd never really heard it before researching this. But um, basically, it's a showcase for Muskillings and his prodigious skills on the bass. Um, there's kind of various different bass parts um, that, for the first half, kind of are really all over the place, um, showcasing different techniques and kind of playing over each other. Um, but then he kind of finishes the track with a really melodic solo, if you like, which sounds like it may have been played on a fretless bass. I'm not sure it's got that kind of Jaco Pastorius feel to it. Again, pretty short track, a minute or so. Um, and actually, I, I really like it. I think it's cool. Yep, the bass player takes over and builds an interlude track out of disparate bass lines and harmonics over a steady drum beat. And it comes across like a short, jazz-inflected avant-garde piece. There's even some backwards notes floating around in there. It's only a minute and seven seconds, and though I don't hate this, I actually quite like this, and Skillings is amazing. He's super talented. It really serves no purpose other than to give Skillings a writing credit and a more or less solo track. It's not essential, but it is interesting nonetheless. I am glad it's here. The next track is Fight the Fight, written by Will Calhoun, Corey Glover, Vernon Reed, and Muzz Skillings. We all are fighting the same fight. We all are in the same war. We all are in the same revolution. Got to know what you're fighting for. We all fight the same fight. We all are in the same war. We all are in the same revolution. Got to know what you're fighting for. Yelling and kicking, trying to stay alive. Nick, hit me. So this starts off with some spacey kind of guitar work with loads of echo, creating quite an interesting vibe. And the drums come in with a quite an awkward sounding rhythm that I assumed was in some kind of interesting time signature, but I was reliably informed by my professional drummer friend, Ian, who I was having a beer with <laughs> a couple of nights ago, that this is actually in 4-4. In uh, it's just heavily syncopated. Uh, but whatever it is, I love it. And um, the guitar is providing a very kind of textual background to the verse. 
Um, and things can cut with a tempo change and the guitars and drums bringing a real sense of urgency to the song. Uh, the lyrics are again expressing frustration at the inequalities that black people were feeling. Um, things like, tell me if I'm just like you, but why can't I do the things that you do? We then get a breakdown kind of bridge section uh, with another funky drum beat and some great fills and minimal other instrumentation. And this leads into the guitar solo, which is another melody followed by a shredding effort. <laughs> but for me, the real interest here is the bouncy walking bass line underneath it that keeps things steady while Vernon's going off on another one of his flights of fancy. <laughs> now, Will, Cal Will Calhoun is doing some tasty stuff on the cymbals in this section too. It's quite subtle, but it's just adding little extra bits in. Love it. They're really a great band. And then as we come out of the solo, we get to probably my favorite part of the album from around two minutes, 58 to three minutes, six. It's uh, the guitar is all like fast staccato chords and the drums are following. And this builds the tension so high. And before then, it's kind of released as we go into the my heartbeats, just like yours bit. Um, always love this part. And I always have to crank the stereo kind of as loud as it will go uh, just for those few seconds. I absolutely love it. And we then go back into the heavily kind of syncopated opening groove, um, which they play through to the end of the song. So, yeah, this one's an absolute winner for me. Some read fast note picking coalesces into a slow rolling psychedelic style riff that's drowned in so much chorus and reverb effects that it sounds almost orchestral. But it's done in such a way that I roll right along with it. Calhoun plays some smart syncopation in the beat, and Skillings plays some fretless bass that also adds to the dreamy vibe of this. The verses rock it up harder, with a crunchy staccato riff pattern and Skillings walking and moving his jazzy bass all around underneath. Skillings is incredible on this track. The bridge section has Glover singing over a spare drum beat with helicopter and machine gun sound effects added in. Reed blisters up the solo and finishes with long, deliberately ugly notes while Skillings continues to keep it moving. Glover lets his voice float over the chorus section and goes harder in the verses, and I interpret the lyrics to be about the age-old question concerning war and what exactly are we fighting for, drawing the conclusion that war is hell, peace is hell, and love is hell. War also serves as a metaphor for racism again. TV telling me we're just the same, what they're talking is the same old game. Tell me, if I'm just like you, why can't I do the things that you do? Ultimately, they draw the conclusion that we're all fighting the same fight and we're all in this revolution together. Make sure, though, that your goals are clear. Toward the end, Calhoun lays down a martial drum beat on the chorus section as the track builds to the finish. I am with you, Nick. I'm all about this one. This is one of my favorite tracks. It just sticks with me. This is the one that stays in my head the most this mm -hmm. past week as I was preparing for this podcast. Yeah, yeah, great track. The following track is Tag Team Partners, written by Corey Glover. what do you make of it <laughs> so this one I, I don't think i've ever heard this before this week um again it's not on the on my cassette and um really there's very little to be said than it's uh, a beatbox kind of song um that says tag team partners at the end <laughs> it's i think probably less than a minute and uh, yeah i don't know i guess for me if, if i had a stinky stinker it would be um it would be this one just because it doesn't really do anything <laughs> <laughs> well this is the last interlude 
It's all done on vocals with beatboxing by Dougie Fresh and Glover Scat singing over it. You know, da, 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 da. He's, doesn't, he's not a great scat singer. <laughs> I will say that. But, you know, it's fun. There's that tag team partners line as it begins to fade. And, yeah, it's amusing. It shows a lighter, humorous side to the band. But, come on, really. I'm going to cheat like a motherfucker because it's not a real song. But too bad. Nick, we are simpatico. This is Aaron's Sticky Stinker. <laughs> The penultimate track is Solace of You, written by Corey Glover and Vernon Reed. When I can't think straight And there's no escape I've got the solace of you Gotta go inside Back where it started the beginning cause that's where my heart is gotta go inside back where it started back to the beginning nick let's have it so okay we're now 16 tracks in to the album but do we get more of the same no not at all they keep things fresh with one of the best songs on the album for me uh, the more i listen to this song the more i like it it has a real kind of african feel to it and to me it wouldn't feel out of place on paul simon's graceland album Reed plays with a clean tone throughout the song, and it, for me, the tone really sparkles. It, it always just catches the ear so nicely. Uh, Mus Skillings is playing a very effective bass line, which has got that kind of reggae feel to it with, again, a lot of space. Really love it. So the lyrics and the sentiment to this song I, I, I like as well. I, I find them quite kind of tender and heartfelt, um, with Corey basically saying that whatever kind of shit happens in his life, he knows he's got someone there who he can rely on. Interesting. I, I played it to my wife last night because she's like, well, what are you doing on this thing? I was like, well, you're not going to like most of these songs, but you might like this one. And um, her comment was that the, the verse section almost sounds kind of like a hymn with each line kind of being answered with the I've got the solace of you, um, which is similar to, I don't know, it could be a praise be to God or a God be with you or something in a in a, a hymn uh, kind of at the end of each line. I'd, I'd never really thought of it like that before, but I kind of see what she means. Quite interesting. Musically, I love this track too. The, the drums have a real kind of fast, catchy rhythm to them, and the main guitar riff is simple but beautiful. It's simple in that I can even play it. It's like it's just a D, uh, I don't know, moving around to, I don't know, a sus four or something. But it's it's pretty simple to play. Listening through um, headphones last night, you could hear um, kind of some other percussive sounds coming in during the verse. I think there's possibly kind of that like waka waka, the muted guitar wah wah sound going on. Um, and it all adds to the atmosphere of the song. And I noticed you even get a harmonic bass slide, which I, I know you love your bass slides. And, and to me, I, I just love that. We're going to go, great stuff. We get some backing vocals that I think are sung in Swahili. And again, these are really effective. Um, and that's kind of second section of the song. They've, they've got to go inside that uh, back where it started. Uh, it changes the mood, kind of gets a bit more somber, I suppose. Um, and I, I really love that that change. It's, it's great. So overall, I find this a you know, really uplifting song, and it shows the the breadth of influence and versatility that this band has. That after like 16 tracks, they can still surprise you with something like this. Great stuff. We take another left turn, and this time, Living Color dabble in calypso influences on this tune that has a lighter, breezier feel than anything else on the record. Calhoun plays the rim shots. Reed takes us to the Caribbean with his clean guitar licks, and Skillings adds the island rhythm in the bass, very reggae-like, you said. 
The chorus goes into a light stomp as Calhoun thumps the kick drum, and there are additional backing vocals by Darren Young that emphasize the African heritage of this music, and really all the music that Living Color accesses. Glover kind of takes a lighthearted approach to the vocals, and the lyrics are about someone taking comfort and finding solace in something, whether it's in another person, a god figure, or even yourself. If you're able to find that center, you can endure whatever hardship comes your way. I've always dug this, too. It's a catchy change of pace for this band, and it was the third single that did not chart. I'm not sure having it in this spot in the record, though. I'm not sure about the sequencing of it. But yeah. it doesn't it doesn't throw me off. I still love it. Yeah, no, I agree. It could, it could have come earlier, definitely. It's, it's strong enough to uh, often, you know, on an album with 17 tracks, by the end, you're often throwing stuff away. And it's, uh, yeah, it deserves not to be thrown away. I agree. And that brings us to the final track, This Is The Life, written by Vernon Reed. How about this last one, Nick? So this final track is another that wasn't on my cassette because there wasn't space. Oh, wow, um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, I never really listened to it properly until this this past week. I, I think the, probably the first 10 seconds were on it, and I just remember thinking, oh, that sounds weird. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, musically, again, it's not the most pleasant song to listen to. Um, and it starts off with this cacophony of wailing, both from the guitar and the vocals. Um, and after a minute or so, it kicks into a heavy groove with quite a dark sound to it. Lyrically, they're telling the listener to appreciate the life they have rather than thinking about what might have been. Kind of a classic grass is not always greener moral, um, telling the listener to make the most of what they do have. Around three minutes 15 in, we, we go into this really weird section with a typical reed solo uh, with some very odd drumming that I just can't get my head around at all. Was, I was trying to count it, and it's like there's just snares coming in in really random places, which I kind of really like. I, I like odd drum stuff, and... Um, but I, I, yeah, I'd probably need to listen to it another ten times to kind of <laughs> for it to click. Um, but but that's cool. I don't, I don't mind that at all. So uh, I say overall, this, this isn't a, a bad song at all. And I think my lack of familiarity with it means I don't have the same kind of love for it that I do for most of the other songs on the album. But I think given time, I'd yeah, I, I'd appreciate it more. And it's yeah, a, a solid closer. So this kind of has a Middle Eastern vibe in the way the music builds up in the intro. It's a swirling sound of guitars, orchestral and exotic. I think there's like sitar in there or exotic sounding instruments that finally comes into focus with a slow, dark grinder of a reed riff that brings on a heavy, plodding rocker. Glover's voice is treated with backwards echo as he runs down the positive qualities we all possess in our fantasy lives. You might be a genius. You might have more money. You're always the hero. No one hurts you. But the chorus slams you back to reality. This is the life you have, and it's not a fantasy world as the music leaves space for Glover to drive the point home. The solo section builds from a melodic phrase echoed by the bass, but then it goes into dissonant, jagged note choices and finally heads into a flurious passage before dropping back down to the initial melodic phrase to close it out. 
The song then gets a higher key change as Glover's voice rises to a pleading tone as he underlines that the fantasy life is morphed into victimhood and loneliness before imploring us to use our real lives to be more kind, more observant, and think of others who love us. Glover saves his lung power for the final chorus where he shouts out to the heavens, this is the life you have, and then the track dissolves back into the sound collage musical soup of the intro to wrap things up. This track kind of has a grandiose final statement type of vibe that makes it a strong album closer. I love it. I think it'll grow on you too, Nick. Stick with it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now that the track by track is over, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which had a shitty real life. Nick, what are your final thoughts on Time's Up? So, as I said at the beginning, this um, Vivid, I guess, was, you know, was an important album for me back when I was you know, only 15. Um, would have been, you know, had a pretty heavy rotation on my Walkman for a good six months, I would say, which at that time of your life is, is pretty significant. And the, the gig that I saw that year that I mentioned was, will always be one that stays with me. Um, and I can remember being on holiday in the States, actually, that summer. I had a Living Color t-shirt and I was wearing that all the time, and, and I actually found a, an EP that I think must have been the next thing they released after after uh, Time's Up, but it wasn't released in the UK, and I, uh, six or seven tracks, I think, and I, I bought it, and I remember feeling very cool kind of taking that home and like, oh, yeah, this is only available in the States, and sharing it with all my friends. Was it Biscuits? Yeah, Biscuits. Yeah, 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 and there's some, some great stuff on that as well, isn't there? There's a yes. cover of um, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. So I think I would say I'm going to give this album a, a four and a half. Apart from a couple of the interludes, which I'm, I'm kind of happy to skip, every song on here is strong. And the quality of the musicianship means there's always something interesting going on. And you can find something new with every listen, particularly the bass and the drums, which you, know, you, you can kind of gloss over sometimes. But if you actually spend the time listening to them, it's like, wow, this is awesome. They're, these guys just really on it. Yeah, so that's it. Overall, a really great album. When Living Color released their debut album, Vivid, in May 1988, it gained sales momentum when MTV played the video for their single, Cult of Personality and Heavy Rotation, drawing in the hard rock and metal fan base who dug the heavy sound. The album would eventually go double platinum. The band toured the record opening up for the Rolling Stones on their Steel Wheels tour and gained further exposure. When Living Color entered the studio to record the follow-up album, their new clout allowed them to get a bevy of guest musicians such as Little Richard, Maceo Parker, Queen Latifah, and Dougie Fresh to appear on the tracks. The collage-style album cover was created by graphic designer Byram and Thunder Jockeys, and when Time's Up was released, it was a critical success and sold moderately well, going gold and winning a 1991 Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance. Living Color joined the inaugural Lollapalooza Festival in 1991 and released an EP of outtakes titled Biscuits later that year that Nick picked up. (laughs) As I said earlier, I was on board with this band right from the first album, and when this one came out, I dug it just as much, if not more than vivid. It showcases a broad array of musical styles such as hard rock, punk rock, funk, jazz, soul, metal, and even hip-hop. The four members are all top-flight musicians who brought it all to the table and pulled off this hybrid mishmash of musical genres with skill and fire, while lyrically tackling hard socio-political issues of the day that retains its relevance more than ever now, more than 30 years after the album was released. 
This record cemented my fandom of Living Color, and though the band had a lineup change and went through a late 90s breakup, they reformed in the year 2000 and continue to record and tour to this day. I give Time's Up a strong four. On some days, I also will give it a four and a half. And in my opinion, all of their records are worth a listen. Living Color rocks. Now I'd like to thank Patreon legend Nicholas Dunning for coming on the podcast to take on Living Color with me. I hope you had a good time, man. Yeah, I really did. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for, for quite a while. All right. Uh, yeah. yeah, really good fun. Thank you. Is there anything you want to plug or promote? <laughs> Not really. No, I, I don't have a podcast. I kind of keep thinking maybe I should do one. But if I did, it would be something like this. And there's no point because <laughs> you do it so well. Um, yeah, you definitely should. There's always room. There's room for everybody out here. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I, it's kind of niggling me, so uh, we'll see. We'll see. When you do it, let us know. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely, definitely. Awesome. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at ridiculousrockrecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron, and see ya. Time's up! The lyrics are about how American history is glossed over when it comes to slavery, and the band have witnessed racism in their own experience. When white audiences like the bands, <clears throat> when white audiences like the bands, lo- when <clears throat> let's say this again. <clears throat> yes, fumble, fumble, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> Gotta have some chipmunk material, I suppose. <laughs> Did you hear that car? No. The bane of my existence, Nick. The freaking traffic. <laughs> I, I, just a, I just had a plane fly out. I heard right? that. I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we're right by the airport. Oh, man, we got cars and planes. We need a train. That's all we need. We'll have it all covered. <laughs> <laughs>